today, um, again, strange that we ended up doing death for the sermon today, and then uh, today we're going to talk about talking to kids about the idea of uh, the judgment. And so again, just remember kind of what we're trying to do, we're going to get a basic idea of what we think about it, translate into child ease, uh, find some metaphors, tolerate misunderstandings, and encourage good questions. Uh, when we talk about um, the fancy theological term is eschatology, which is just Greek for last things, the stuff that happens at the end. And so we want to know how are we talking to kids about how it all ends. And not just death specifically, but past that, of Christians believe that the Messiah who comes once will come again, and in like fashion he will return. Um, trumpet and twinkling of an eye, and the dead will be raised. We believe in a resurrection, a general resurrection, of which Jesus is the first fruits. And uh, we believe in something uh, best described as judgment, um, that in fact, in the Bible, one of the people who talks about it the most is Jesus. Uh, as much as he dies to save, he is also pretty adamant that there will be a reckoning of what we've done in life. Um, a, a reckoning changed by his atoning death that makes something possible that wouldn't be otherwise, but still a reckoning of some kind and of judgment uh, upon all. So whether it's him talking about sheep and goats or I'll say to them, I never knew you, uh, he has that language of judgment. So how do we talk about this to kids? What do you, we don't have to get too far in the weeds. Um, outside of Church of Christ circles, I'm reminded that this discussion always leads to a discussion of what's your view on the millennium? Like, and, and like very specific questions when I was at Midwestern Baptist, like every time we got started here, we, it would then go to, What's, what does your church teach on the millennium? To which I would say, well, we don't. I, I don't know that we have. <laughs> right? we're, churches of Christ quite literally are described as amillennial. As in, like, we, we believe in it. We just don't have a specific concrete, it's this thing. It's just, for us, it's a little more metaphorical of, of that. So we don't have to get into the weeds of all that because we're, we are who we are. But we do certainly believe in a second coming. So what do we say to kids about Jesus coming back? Don't overthink it. He's coming back. It's going to be a happy day. Yeah. Jesus is coming back for us. And that's, that one's easy. Like, don't, don't overcomplicate that one. And, and I feel like every time I see uh, a giant rapture chart with like 50 different segments in it, I just want to say, so he's coming back, right? I mean, that's, that's <laughs> can we get that part on the paper? I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Can we just be happy with, with he's coming back and then I'll be glad with the result if I'm in him? Uh, that's pretty good that Jesus is returning is pretty important. What do you say about the resurrection? Okay. So we're going to talk about the dead will live again. Um, the word, I don't know, it's an easy word, but it's not necessarily child ease. But the word that Christianity has always insisted upon is it's a bodily resurrection. So we don't mean, and then Casper comes up from the tomb, but like actually there is a, in the same way Jesus comes up and you could touch him and you could see him and talk to him and he could eat fish by the Sea of Tiberias with his <laughs> disciples, like very much a bodily form comes back in the resurrection. 
It's a different kind of form. Uh, people didn't recognize him at first. He's clearly changed, but it's also still him. To Paul's point this morning in the sermon, as one star differs from another star in glory. Like, it's, it's different, but it's still, it's still that thing. So the dead live again. And I, I, just in some way, whatever words you need, to try to make it a little more concrete, um, not a little ball of light floating through the ether, but like you, the person we, we know, remade, comes back uh, and continues. And then what might you say about judgment? Mm. Butterfly and, ca- he and cocoon. Was a caterpillar. Yeah. And then he went into the chrysalis and uh. he came out, but he's still the caterpillar. Yeah. It's transformed into another. Yeah. A same identity. Yeah, that's, that's good for kids. Uh, butterflies are great for kids anyway because they're just cool. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it's a great example. Of, like, the identity of that entity is still the same thing. And yet, clearly, fundamentally different. I mean, it flies now. I mean, that's cool. Right? It's pretty and colorful. And I, I think that's kind of what you would say about Jesus. He comes back, and mm-hmm. the people that first saw him said, "Who's that?" And he said, "It's me." And they go, "Oh, of course it is." But like once they recognize you, it's like, "Yes, that is the same person." But there was a moment of, "You are different," you know, uh, which is something about that. But he still has the parts that they could feel. Yeah, he had he has scars. So I don't think about us being. So that's that's a good one to ask about the resurrection. Um, we often will say, okay, you come back and everything wrong with you is gone, right? I think we probably overstate that a little bit because Jesus does come back and he has scars. And what I would say about Jesus is his scars didn't make him any less. They were like trophies. I mean, they made him more. You know, they were signs of what he had done. And so, I don't know then, what does the best version of Ben Williams look like? Is it going to be like 18-year-old Ben or 40-year-old Ben or 70-year-old Ben or some conglomeration of none of those Bens? There is no good Ben. You know, I, I don't know. But like something, things that make me best remain, even if they might signify a hardship, you know, that... They were things that were the best part of me. Um, that, that's what I take away from the scars, you know, that, that he is not less for having them. You know. And oddly enough, in the language of Scripture, still has them. Like, when he ascends, the early church fathers would say it was a bodily ascension, by which they, like, Jesus doesn't go off and it's a stage five rocket and his body peels off and just God goes up to heaven. Uh, Jesus, when John sees him in Revelation, it's, he says, that's the lamb that was slain. Like, he sees still, this is the person who died. And, and he still is who he is in some sense. And I, I don't know what to make of that, but it's, he still is the man Christ Jesus in First Timothy. He remains. Um, with judgment, I think probably the biggest mistake we can make with kids is overstatement. Uh, it can be a frightening topic all on its own, so you don't have to work too hard at it. I will say something like, God will look at every human life and consider it. Okay? Um, I don't like the idea of God's going to give a pop quiz with trick questions and he's trying to catch you so he can send you to hell. Like, that's just not the image. It's not a scary idea in that sense. It, in fact, it's a good thing. It meant what you did here mattered. Like, it wasn't irrelevant. 
God's going to take a look at your life and say, okay, what'd you do? And that, that's not all that goes into that, but it matters what, what you did. You know what thing, seems funny to me is you can't even remember so much of your life when the older you get. But God For real. look through your whole life. I wonder if you'll remember it all. <laughs> I was helping my mom with a project, and it was I'm in this house at Seminole that I don't go to anymore that I have to. It's not the house I grew up in, but it's the house they live in now. But it has all the stuff from the house I grew up in in it somewhere because they don't get rid of anything. And I'm like, they had a shelf fall, and I'm trying to help them reorient it. And somewhere in there is my sixth grade football jersey. I didn't even remember I played football in sixth grade. Like, but there it was, like everything kept like, oh, I remember that and like what it smelled like and what it felt like in my hand and you know what it looked, all of that. And it was so important to me at one moment, and then clearly not now, <laughs> of how much of my life is just not on my radar right now, and God has this knowledge of it. He's like, hmm, remember that, Ben? Yeah, it's both, it's both thrilling and terrifying, right? He notices me, that's great. Oh, he notices me. <laughs> there are a lot of me I wish he hadn't noticed. Yeah. Uh, so let's look a little bit at what some of the Bible will say about it. Acts 1, 10 and 11. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, um, the second coming of Christ is something like a homecoming. Um, that there's a time, due to, due to our schedule currently, um, I tried, one of us, Selena, I try to be home when the kids get home off the bus, but sometimes uh, they get there before us just by virtue of traffic or whatever we happen to be doing. We're stuck doing something. Uh, it's great now in the world of modern technology that we have a, an Alexa in the house, and Calvin can just walk in and yell, call mom, and, and where are you? And, and, and you know, he doesn't have to know a lot. But uh, anyway, they get there, and they don't assume they have been orphaned, Right? They get there and they assume in the very near future, about the time of dinner, if not before, the two people who live in this house will be back. Okay, so there's an expectation. Um, you, your parent goes to work, comes back. And I think kids are familiar with that idea of leaving doesn't necessarily mean living, leaving forever in a healthy home, which is why healthy homes are so important. Um, my dad, uh, his dad was a deadbeat. His, his mother died when he was eight, and his dad was a mess. And so one day, he drops dad off and his little brother in a stroller at the post office in Seminole and says, I'm going to go run some errands. I'll be back. And they didn't see him again for a month. And dad just got kicked around to whichever relatives put up with him that week. And that's kind of his story. So for him, you know, there is this uncertainty of when people leave, do they come back? Um, I never had that. People left and they came back. That's what they do. And so in a healthy home, you can point to that and say, he is coming back. There's an expectation. It's certain. It seems like forever. Mm -hmm. When you're waiting, no matter how long it is, it seems like it's forever. When are you going to get here? It's always longer in the feelings. But it's worth waiting for. You're glad when they come home and there's this joy of reunion. It's and really more forever for the one spouse that is already home with the kids, for the other one to get home. That's Tell us more about the, uh, yes, for some of us, it's more forever than others, right? If you're there by yourself with the children. Um, when I got home from my four days at the, the Abbey, Celine says, 
here's your son, welcome home. And it was like, this one's got an attitude, that one's something else, I'm done. I was like, oh, okay, I, I walked through the door and the kid, well, the kids sometimes are like, daddy, and, and then she says, daddy's home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very relative, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Kind of depends on what's been Someone happening in the meantime. First Thessalonians four sixteen through seventeen, the Lord Himself will descend with from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Um, I like the idea of it's a, a kind of homecoming, so maybe a longer separation. Um, I especially like the the military metaphor because sometimes, not always, but sometimes after a long deployment they'll have a, a parade and like walk through town and everyone celebrates, right? And that's kind of how the second coming of Christ is described. Like there's a trumpet and then everybody, like it says, we'll meet him in the air. Like we can't even wait for him to get here. We run out to meet him. You know, when somebody, somebody you haven't seen for a long time stops at that house, you don't wait for them to come and ring the, ring the doorbell. You like just run and tackle them in the driveway, right? And that's kind of the way the second coming is described. There's a trumpet, he comes home, and we're all like, woo, let's go see him. The dead rise up. and We're all living and dead. We want to go be with him, and the parade starts. And it's, it's a celebration. So it's like a family member coming home from a deployment. Um, it's, it's a longer-term separation, and we rush to meet them, and we never want to be separated again, right? You hug them, and that hug lasts forever. Never, ever going to let go. That notion, uh, I think, is maybe a good metaphor. Uh, speaking of the resurrection, this is from today's sermon, actually. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Uh, I joked last week about how many times I've heard Bud's funeral sermon. The only funeral sermon I've heard more often than Bud's is my dad's funeral sermon, uh, which is out of this passage. And especially graveside at the cemetery, he will say, we play the part of a farmer today. We put the seed in the ground in expectation that something greater is raised up in a harvest. And he has this whole farmer bit that he does while you're standing next to this hole in the ground where you're going to put your loved one. Uh, and that metaphor is the biblical metaphor of you're putting something in in trust and something else is going to be brought back. Uh, the resurrection's like a seed that grows. It appears dead. I mean, you look at a seed. It's not hopping around and talking to you. Right? It's not like a puppy. It it's, doesn't look like it's anything. And yet you put it in the ground, you cover it up and forget about it. And lo and behold, God does something amazing. Um, it's buried in the earth. Uh, for us, that's the way we do our burials. Um, not every culture does it exactly the same way. And we don't have to make a comment about... Uh, my brain just completely shut off. Cremation, cremation thank you, sorry. Uh, I was thinking of ten words for fire and could not think of cremation. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, that's not the point of, like, for or against. It's just that, in general, like, this is a nice metaphor that's pretty common to us, typically in the earth. It seems to do nothing for a long time. Like, you come back, you know how kids are when they have the plant from school and they put the seed and they, like, stare at it. Yeah. And it just seems like it's doing nothing. And if you go by the cemetery, that's kind of how it looks. You can spend a lot of time staring at it, saying, any time now. Um, but it grows into something 
more beautiful than the seed originally was. It's not just a restoration, it's a better than before restoration. Okay. And I think that's the beautiful hope of the resurrection. Um, found your butterfly. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Um, again, there is this idea of the changing of the body to be something more perfect. Um, something the same, but better. And that's a remarkable image, I think, and the, the butterfly works for that. Um, speaking specifically of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 again, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Just as we have borne the image of the man from dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. So one of the important themes that we probably overlook about the resurrection is it is like the resurrection of Christ. I think in my mind, Christ was raised up like a person was raised from the dead, but I'm going to have like a Casper resurrection, and I'm going to come back as this little ball of light with a harp, and I'll float around. And while I'm still not clear on what all the resurrection will be, the Bible over and over emphasizes what you saw in Jesus is what you're being promised. That it really is you, different but you, coming back. He's the, the first fruits, right? He's, he's the first bit of the harvest brought in. It represents the rest. The first body is already out of the grave. That's what we're anticipating. You looked like Adam before, we'll look like Jesus at the end. Um, I can't remember if it's in these notes or not, but my favorite passage on that, which I <coughs> think it probably is not this somewhere, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Beloved is, I can only do it out of the King James, sorry. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. John, who actually saw the resurrection, said, I'm still not exactly clear on what the resurrection will be like, except in so much as I will look like him, and I will see him as he really is. And that's what he anticipates, a Jesus-like resurrection. Um, judgment, I, I, I'll say this, um, don't have a lot of scriptures up here on the judgment, but uh, I want us to find ways to talk about the judgment that encourages responsibility but not terror on the part of kids that, like, yes, every work will be brought into judgment. I always had this fear, you know, like, of that one bad thing I hadn't asked for forgiveness of or, or you know, that what if the last thing I do is really bad? Is, I'm in a car wreck, and my last word's a dirty word, and, and that's God's like, well, yeah, you were doing good until there, Ben, but uh, <laughs> sorry about you. I was, I was scary to me as a kid. I'm worried about that kind of stuff. Um, I think a less, or, or even comparing it to a test or an exam, which I heard in sermons my whole life about, you know, are you prepared for the final exam? You know, kind of... Uh, no one likes an exam. <laughs> like, you always feel like you don't know enough and you're unprepared, and then you feel like you did bad, and then it's scary. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's the right metaphor. The teacher doesn't even like, the doesn't even like the exams, yeah. Um, on the other hand, my kids have uh, chore charts sometimes. Sometimes we, we go weeks without checking them, and then, we, oh, yeah, we got chore charts. Do your chores. 
but when we're doing, when we're good parents, we, we have little chore charts, and uh, they have a list of things they're responsible for. It's not an infinite list. It's not everything you know about their life. They're still allowed to have fun and be kids. But there's like four or five things when you get home, especially on days when they beat us home. Do these four or five things, and then you can turn on the PlayStation. Like, not well. I was going to get to them later. No, you weren't. You do the things first. You check the boxes. You did what you were asked to do, what you were made responsible for, and none of it's over the top. And they're they're even they're even on a sliding scale. They're like Calvin's is make sure there isn't garbage in your room, right? <laughs> so like just go in there. Have you piled refuse in your room somewhere? Please get it out. Lucas's is take the trash out from the whole house. You know, it's a 13-year-old chores. And then there's a different set of things. Lucas's empty the dishwasher. Calvin's is please look in your room for cups you have hidden. Right? <laughs> and bring them to Lucas to then put in the dishwasher. So it's not even equal. It's a sliding scale. Everybody has a different set of accountability. But there are these, I think, things you're supposed to do. And when the parents get home, it's expected that those things are done. And I think that's a reasonable comparison to the judgment. That's a little less frightening than the pop quiz. It's not going to have trick questions. It's what does scripture say? But what does the Lord require of thee? Justice, mercy, humility, right? That's your chore chart. <laughs> Can you do these things? Love your God, love others. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of things I might want to add to the list, but in general... It's not a really overwhelming list. It's, it's tailored to you by God who knew what you were capable of and what you aren't. Um, and when, you're, when your parents come home, they're happy that you did the thing, right? Uh, they celebrate the fact that, yay, it's done. Uh, I, I am in the habit of telling my kids thank you. And I know on the one hand, that's silly. It's, they darn well better do it. Like, I mean, it, it's not like they're doing me a favor. I pay for the roof over their head. and I can be grumpy if I want, but just as a matter of courtesy, I'd like for them to say thank you. So I say thank you. Thank you for doing your chores. Appreciate that. And they're like, oh, yeah. Dad kind of likes us. That's great. On the other hand, I get home and either child A or B is on an electronic device and chores undone. I'm going to have a conversation about that. Dad's mood is not as good. That's not because I hate them or didn't love them or tricked them. It's because they had something they were supposed to be doing, and they decided just not to do it. And that has to matter, right? It has to matter. Not making, doing your chores makes parents unhappy. Okay? There was something that needed done, and you didn't do it. So I think that's a, a not-too-over-the-top metaphor for it that we can, we can make, uh, especially if you make the list short. <laughs> mm -hmm. If it's like, and you have to follow this passage from 1 Corinthians and this passage from Leviticus and this passage. If instead you're like, you know, be decent, love Jesus, love people. And there's some other stuff we'll learn as you get older. But like, do the thing. Did you do that today? Were you kind? That's the kind of thing God is looking for, by and large. Uh, Jesus uh, says the chore we have been giving is to living with love for God and man. And he says he'll know if we did it or not. If you read the Matthew 25, which is Jesus' longest treatment of the judgment, it's, you know, did you help people in prison? Did you take care of the sick? Did you feed people that were hungry? And that's the deciding factor. There are no, uh, here's the fancy, there are fancy term, there's no ecclesiological questions on the quiz. Like there's no question of church doctrine or can you the Nicene, repeat the Nicene Creed. 
you know, even that, like it's just not on there. Instead, it's, were you decent? Did you love God? Did you love others? I don't want to simplify it too far and say none of those other things matter, because obviously I'm a minister and I think all those things matter. But when I'm talking to kids, I don't think we have to overcomplicate it. Were you kind today? That was something you could do. Did you do it? And he'll know if we did it or not. Sometimes my kids can fool me. Uh, I don't think God gets tricked. I don't think it's the way it works. I like to remind my kids that they trick me less often than they think. Not just because it gives me sinister pleasure, which it does, but also as a reminder of, in the long run, you don't really get away with stuff. You're not really as clever as you think. It, it comes back around, and they need to believe that. Kids must not grow up thinking they can outsmart the justice of the universe. And that's you in the home, and it's God in the cosmos. And they need to know, yeah, there are consequences. There's somebody that checks on that stuff. Questions or comments on judgment and resurrection? speak much about the positive side so uh, in terms of judgment <laughs> doing wrong is one thing absolutely but the reward portion <laughs> the casting of crowns at the feet of Christ yeah. uh, so it, it, with kids with Thomas in particular he wants to know what the reward is for doing good yeah while also knowing what the punishment is for doing bad yeah and I don't know, I don't know if we should balance this. I know for me it was punishment, bad, discipline, don't yeah. be bad, don't be terrible, or you get in trouble. And it was about 90% that, and 10% yeah. if you do the right thing, I'll leave you alone. I think it varies by kid and by age. I mean, it really is a struggle. Um, with Lucas, uh, even the types of punishment, we were a pretty conservative early parent and believed in spanking my kid and doing all the things. And then we find out Lucas has a pain tolerance that's like through the roof. And there was nothing I could do to inflict sufficient amount of pain to change his mind, short of abuse. And at one point I'm like, I don't want to go down this road any further. On the other hand, if I took something away that he cherished, he would be a puddle of tears. It's like, aha, found you. Yeah, got, got your thing. And then same thing with positive motivations. But they, that worked, whereas I'm going to spank your bottom did not with yeah. him. And some other kid may be different, you know, so I, I don't dare to tell you how to do it. Calvin, you just look at him wrong and he cries. I mean, he's just very teary-eyed about his morality <laughs> in his own little child way. Um, so I think it does vary by kid and by age. Now Lucas is old enough that I actually can't tell him too much about rewards and punishments. I have to leave it vague because he starts doing the math of like, Maybe that would be worth it to. Isn't that what we do, though? That's exactly the point. Yeah. With the Bible. We start gaming the system a little bit. Yeah, if I get a little more on Sunday, then I can go to the casino some more. You know, something like that. Isn't that kind of what. It is. And and shame. Like, that's like, if only we could keep our children from learning that. But they do. They learn it early because they're, I don't know, depraved or something. But (laughs) they figure out, like, to, to game the system. And so with Lucas, as he ages, I start talking about, um, you're going to do it whether you get anything out of it or not, because it's the right thing to do. Now, as a 13-year-old, he'll, he'll hear me say that more often. Sure. And then deeply disappointed. And I usually reward him anyway, but I, I, I try to make it not an expectation of, like, just, you're going to do it because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. 
and that's a little harder. But it, again, it, it, it stair steps up. With little kids, here's your candy. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't know, like, that was probably a great explanation, because still, like, as an adult, I'm like, there's nothing like that. I am, like, terrified. Yeah. So. Yeah, we, we learn it early, and it's shaped early, and it lasts a long time. So, you know, I'm not trying to terrify you about parenting, but be aware that you're setting the stakes through which your kids are going to view God and judgment and the whole thing. So being balanced and healthy about it. At the same time, letting them get away with stuff teaches them that it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And that God doesn't really hold you to any account. And so figuring out how to show them that God is just and gracious at the same time is, is such a challenge. But it's the job you signed up for. Sorry about that. I think there's some talking you can do too on like at school we talk about this what kind of world do we want to live in hmm. I may pick up this piece of paper that I didn't throw down on the ground because I want yeah. my, my I want to live in a clean place I want to um, I want the world to be a good place and yeah. I may pay attention to the teacher because I know that one day we were talk about it in first grade that I want to have lots of choices of what I can be when I grow up. Mm. So I'm going to do my work. Yeah. Um, and I think you can do that at home to a degree, too. Um, and I, even with, um, like from the Ten Commandments, we call them the rules for happy living. Mm. God wants us to be happy, so these are some of the rules he gave us to follow in our home. We have rules, and it's because we want you to be able to grow up and be a happy person, too. Yeah. And, and so you can give some reason, I think, yeah. at a certain age, yeah. to some of that. But I also think mm -hmm. that be yeah. respect for the authority figure too. God gave put, gave you, you're my child, mm -hmm. and He put me in charge of you, just like God is in charge of all of us. Yeah. So that you can see how to learn to obey God. If you obey me, you can learn to obey God. Yeah. We do a little bit of both. I mean, I know we're out of time, but Celine tends to be, not always, but she's usually a good cop and I'm usually a bad cop, although sometimes we switch. Mm -hmm. And her job is to explain why we have this rule. And my job is usually to say, because I said to do it. Yeah. Do it. And, and both, either one of them by themselves are bad. Yeah. I don't want you to just obey because you understand me. And I don't want you to just obey because I'm an authority. I want you to learn, like, but together it's like respect the authority and try to understand we don't want to live in filth. That's why we take the trash out. You know, there's a reason for this. Grow up a little. Yeah.